Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. How are you? Hi, Claire. I'm fine. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. I want to warn you now that I am trying to wean myself off strong caffeine. So I'm sitting with a cup of half decaf coffee. So if something I say doesn't make sense, just pull me up on it and tell me I need to have full caffeine by next week. Is this a staged process? Are you going to go to full (laughs) decaf? I think I'm just missing good coffee. I'm missing your coffee machine and your lovely coffee. And I'm still using the rubbish cafetiere kind of coffee. So maybe I should treat myself to a machine or come and sit in your garden now that we're allowed to. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. We'll be able to sit and have coffees um, again in the garden and socially distantly but I did look at the weather forecast to see when we could plan one in for next week and it's not looking that nice but yesterday I ventured out into our very dusty spidery garden shed to see if I could find an ancient gazebo that we bought years and years ago because I was thinking if I could set it up in the garden even if it was raining we could still have a socially distant coffee. Well and now that you said that of course once you get it up and it's perfect the sun will shine that's how it works in this country so once it's up and ready then the sun will shine so could you get it up already because it's a bit cold and grey today. Today we're really lucky that we've got a couple of really new and different pieces. The first is a short story by Heather Parry called Child of the Moon. Thank you, Heather, for giving us this story to look at. And we're going to finish up with a poem by Jackie Kay, one of our favourites at Open Book, called Number 115 or Number 115. Will I get us started on the reading and then we can get into the chat? Yeah, why don't you do that? Okay, Child of the Moon. His mother paints electric blue around his eyes and sweeps the brush upwards with a flourish. She knows the boy hates it, the cloying grease of the face paint, the performance to come, the inevitable pimples. Yet he sits there while his mother, with mascara shipped from Asia, colors his white eyelashes even whiter. With the same implement, she'll color his white eyebrows, too. As they sit face to face, their bare knees rest together. Their vastly different skin tones, as always, make him think of yin and yang. She prefers to call him the cream to her coffee. Seriously, Mum, I'm too old for this. You're never too old for tradition. A splash of darkest red on the lips finishes his face. He goes to scratch his mouth. His mother bats his hand away. She steps behind her seated son, taking all of his thin, colourless hair in one hand and sweeping it up from his shoulders. Two twists of the wrists and it sits in a neat bun atop of his head, showing off his pale neck. A good length of spine. She glances out of the window. It's almost time. Mum... They don't even watch anymore, but they'll notice if it doesn't happen. The curtain twitchers of their small town know this routine like clockwork, and though they no longer spill out onto the street, they still await the boy's emergence with every rise of the blood moon. She begins to wrap the many-coloured fabrics of their homeland around his body. She allows a proud tear to drop onto his pearly back. He stands, lifts his arms, slowly spins on his heels. The fabric encases him. This is not how the men dress on their island. 
This is the ceremonial dress of the women, but she's never told him. He's ready. Swaddled in the fabrics of his homeland, his white hair tied, his face painted. He looks magnificent. She hands him his bow and arrow. He tugs at the material around his waist and scratches where the paint itches his face. If only her heritage actually did look this beautiful. The moon finally burns. The boy goes out into the street. Will we stop there and have a chat? Yeah, there's so much tension in this bit. I know. And I think maybe I didn't notice it as much until I started reading it aloud. It's funny how reading aloud changes the tone, or maybe just my tone. When you started to read it, the sort of hairs in the back of my neck were creeping up. I was thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? How, how old do you think this boy is? Maybe about eight or ten. What about you? I think he's older because I've got a ten-year-old and I think he might just put up with this being dressed up and painted. Maybe. But by the time my older ones got to about 12 or 13, there's absolutely no way they would or they would certainly start resisting in this way. I think yours must be more biddable than mine then because that's why I said eight, ten. But you're right, the inevitable pimples does make you think that it is someone older. Well, and also I think mine might resist me dressing them up in something they weren't familiar with if it was a Persian tradition for example then I think it would take them longer to object if I said to my youngest now we're going to put you in something he wasn't comfortable or happy with he would just say no but if it's something he'd done every month or every three months or whatever for his whole life I think it would take him longer and he felt it was culturally important to me I think it would probably take him a bit longer there's definitely I can't place them can you place them no, not at all. I was, there's obviously importance in the fact the mascara shipped from Asia, but then we start talking about the fabrics of the ceremonial dress on their island. I assumed at first that they were on an island, but actually I think on reread, this is the island she's from or they're from, but they're not there anymore because the boy doesn't know that it's the woman's dress that he's in. Yeah, that's what I took from it. In which case, how do the neighbours know to look? I understand that if it's a kind of cultural thing, I understand how the neighbours would know that it's a blood moon and therefore they must look out because it's part of their culture. But it seems like she's bringing her own culture to wherever it is that they are. I wonder if they've just been doing it so long that the neighbours know to expect it rather than it being part necessarily of the neighbour's own culture. Yeah, because I wonder, for example, here for me, you know, people will now know that I celebrate Thanksgiving and will say, oh, happy Thanksgiving when, you know, it's in the news or whatever. And increasingly, if it's sort of the spring equinox, as people have gotten to know me, they'll know that it's the biggest holiday of the year for Iranians. So they'll say, oh, happy Nowruz or whatever. So I wonder if it's that sort of thing of getting to know someone over time and realising the things that they celebrate might be slightly different. She's sort of slightly fudging it by dressing her son in what is the more colourful dress of women in a way that I'm sort of making the more colourful meals that aren't necessarily traditional, but they're the ones that I know the Westerners and friends would appreciate. And to be honest, I appreciate they're the ones I would, if I'm only going to make one thing, that's the thing I'm going to make. It's funny how you can get away with that when you're not actually in the place that you're from. So here's my question about the story, though, the curtain twitchers. And the idea that they know this routine like clockwork, is that just because, you know, do you have that experience on your street where people know your routines? They know, ah, oh, there goes Claire, she's off to the shops, it's Monday morning or whatever. Is it that it feels kind of a historical thing rather than a modern thing? Well, for me, it was, it gave me more of a clue of what the 
geography or the physical setup of the street they were in was because I associate that term with a street where there's lots of houses and lots of people, maybe quite a suburban setting. I wonder if something's happened in this story because she's saying they no longer spill out onto the street. And the thing we haven't talked about, which I'm really curious about, and I still don't know the answer to is, what's the story about the skin colors being so different? I mean, I wasn't sure if he's an albino child. You know, calling a child's hair white makes me think there's something else going on here. And for me, that came as well from even beyond white. Later on, it's described as colorless. Yeah, exactly. The eyelashes, right? For me, that's like one step on from blonde or white hair. You know, when when we got to the cream and the coffee, I thought, oh, well, this is a mixed race child. And then when it got white hair and then the colorless, I thought, you know, there's something else is going on here, which made me think maybe this is a tradition linked to that in some way. And the fact that he has some special significance because of that, that he has to be the one that's dressed up rather than any other person in the street. Yeah, exactly. It made me think, well, maybe this is a tradition for children or for adults of whatever type this child is. And he's got long hair, so there's definitely a different tradition going on. I mean, obviously there are children in this country with long hair as well, but it's certainly not, you know, the average thing. So there's a division in some way. I think it's interesting how the description of them gives us a sense of division between them that underpins or underlines the kind of usual teenage tension as well. It feels like there's a cultural tradition that's there's a division and then there's the teenage division. I mean, the curtains themselves are a division in a way. I mean, it feels to me that the whole story is about individuals not quite seeing each other or not quite seeing from each other's perspective. So it feels to me that there's division between the mother and son, but then there's a division between them and the other people in the street. Working both ways, they, neither really understands the other's position. It puts me in mind um, of the idea of sort of a second generation. It's something I have written a little bit about and obviously experienced as well, but the idea that Quite often the children of immigrants, and I, I don't know if she's an immigrant, but it's something that I think about a lot. The children of immigrants want away from that culture. They just want to fit in, you know. Um, so certainly when we arrived from Iran, we just did everything we could just to fit in. That was hard, given that we were brown and, you know, and obviously spoke with an accent and things, but very quickly shed all of that and tried very hard to be American. Part of that was because of the, the political situation at the time, but also part of it is just, I think, that instinct to just fit in and not want to be different. And I think you see that in the children of refugee parents here, that the parents are desperate to hold on to the culture and hold on to the language and to pass that on to their children for all sorts of understandable and obvious and really good reasons. And the children so often are really resistant to that because they just want to fit in. And I feel like there's some of that question being raised here, which is, you know, she's trying to keep on a tradition from their island. She says, our island. And he's going, I'm too old for this. And he's resistant, although he's obviously letting her do it. Yeah, I feel like she's raising that whole, another kind of division, which is, please let me be part of this new place and her clinging on to the old. But let's see, who knows? Shall I read the next bit? Yeah. He walks to the middle of the road, raises his arms, his fingertips touching above his head. His gaze raises to meet the sky. Upon seeing the scarlet circle, he reacts. His body falls. He catches himself in a wide-footed stance, knees bent, arms up in horror face contorted. He points, the fingertip tracing a dragon's path around its prey, the blood moon. 
He turns away, one arm across his eyes, one leg slightly bent, the other sweeping the pointed toe of its foot round him in a quiet circle. He spins, torn, action or inaction, the fear of letting one thing consume another, the terror of potential failure. A single bark of laughter, a chill passes through her. She looks from house to house. Each window is dark. Each door remains closed. He stands adrift, man dressed as boy. But for the whiteness of him, he looks exactly like his father. With a breath so deep it animates him, he decides. He reaches for the bow and arrow tucked into the back of his fabric, his delicate fingers finding them easily. He lifts them into the air, settles the arrow to the bow, strokes arrowhead to feather and grasps. He points the tip skyward, trained on the moon's predator, his painted lips part. He takes in strength. He pulls back, pauses, lets go. He stands in the silence. She aches but cannot rescue him. He waits a few more seconds, allowing his arrow to pierce the creature's heart, stop its danger, end its reign over the moon. His mother neither smiles nor claps. This, she thinks, is the last one. A child can slay dragons, but not a man. That's a gorgeous last line, isn't it? And it's funny, I read it completely differently yesterday than the way I read it this morning. Yesterday, I read it as a child can't slay men, like she was worried that it would become a kind of violence thing with him. And this morning, I read it as he's becoming a man. He's now outgrown this tradition or this thing that they do for the blood moon. I don't know how you read it. I read it like that. I read it like only the child has the magical strength to slay the dragon of the blood moon. And once you're a man, you sort of lose. It's like not being able to see fairies anymore when you grow up. That lends to my sense that he's older. So it also, that thing of, except for the whiteness of him, he looks like his father, which makes me think there must be something else going on here. And looking at the sort of just before the end of this story, I think there's a lot in there about, obviously he's resisting doing it. And yet he really engages with it, right? He decides and engages. I think there is that moment in adolescence where you don't want to play the silly child game anymore. And yet there's still a part of your heart that really does. We get a vision of a, of a boy on the edge there of manhood, which is sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I see my teenagers who are desperately trying to be adult-like and grown up about things. And then, you know, and then they cry or they'll say, I just don't want this or whatever. And you think, actually, yeah, of course, because you're still on the cusp of adulthood. You still might want to have a hot chocolate and watch a movie. (laughs) For me, that moment where he decides and engages back again with this tradition is him actually in his heart of hearts wanting to do it. And that's the funny thing to me because that's the moment where she realizes he's too old for it. I wanted to talk about as well the choreography of it. 
it and just how fully he engages and knows, almost knows his role and knows the steps and what to do next. It feels like he's been doing exactly the same movements for a long time. Yeah. And she describes it so beautifully that we feel we're almost dancing with him. I feel like I'm kind of, you know, from the moment where it's a with a breath so deep, it animates him. I feel like as a reader or a listener, I'm holding my breath waiting for him to move in the same way that you might if you're watching someone dance or you feel like you're almost inhabiting that space. She does a really brilliant job of bringing us with him, I think. Well, it actually made me do the movement because I wanted to work out what he was doing and how he was doing it. So I was actually standing with the story, you know, going, right, knees bent, trace your foot round, you know, um, but just because it was interesting to get the sense of what he was actually doing. Here's something I wanted to ask you about. The question for me was those two lines, the fear of letting one thing consume another, the terror of potential failure. I don't know what that means. And now in the context of our discussion about adolescence, I kind of really do. But in terms of what he's actually physically doing, I didn't know what was going on in that part of the story. Did you? I felt it wasn't related to actually what he was doing at that moment. I I wondered if it was fear of letting his mum down or fear of losing touch with her heritage that she feels important. But I didn't think it was fear of failure to perform the dance or shoot the arrow at the moon or whatever, you know, the actual moment that he's in. And we haven't even talked about what she's like as a mum and why she's doing this. I don't think very kindly of her, I have to say. Do you? It feels like she's making him do something she doesn't want to do. What I wondered about was the bit where she says she can't save him. I didn't at any point feel that he needed to be helped or rescued in this process. I thought he seemed quite empowered and quite in control of what he was doing. And again, I wonder if that reference is much wider than the the actual steps he's going through. Well, I wonder if it's a cultural reference or again, if you think about children of refugees or children of different races, I think as a parent, you would feel you're sending your children out into the world and there's nothing you can do. All you can do is give them the tools to defend themselves, the bow and arrow. So I wonder if it's that kind of reference, and especially if he's an albino child, you can imagine what that would be like, or you would want to protect them and save them from harm, and it would be very hard to do that. And in some cultures, albino children are ostracized completely. So, you know, you could conjecture that she's moved because of that. Um, But I think it's that recognition that she's not going to be able to save him. You know, you can can save a young child in the sense that you can protect them and keep them in and coddle them. But when they hit this, what she sees him, suddenly sees him as a man. All you can do is support them, really, but you can't save them from what's going to happen to them. Which is, I think, is a tougher thing as a parent as it is for a child in some ways, because we're so good at protecting young people. Yeah, lots and so much there. And I feel like we haven't even got to the bottom of it. We'd love to hear what you think too about this story and where you placed the boy and the mother and what you thought about what was going on in it, for sure. Shall we have a look at Jackie Kay's poem? Are you going to read it? Yeah. Number 115 Dreams. The living room remembers Gran dancing to Count Basie. The kitchen can still hear my aunts fighting on Christmas Day. The hall is worried about the loose banister. The small room is troubled by the missing hamster. The toilet particularly dislikes my grandfather. The wallpaper covers up for the whole family. A number 115 dreams of lovely houses by the sea. A number 115 dreams of one night in the country. The stairs are keeping shtum about the broken window. The toilet's sick of the trapped pipe squealing so. The walls aren't thick enough for all the screaming. 
My parents' bedroom has a bed and a choppy sea. My own bedroom loves the bones of me. My brother's bedroom needs a different boy. And number 115 dreams of yellow light and attic room. And number 115 dreams of a chimney, a new red roof. And the red roof of dreams of robin red breasts tap dancing on the red dance floor in the open air. I love this idea that a house gets to talk back to us and that all the parts of it have something to say to all the inhabitants. You get that sense in some buildings, don't you, that the building is keeping secrets and and you, you can walk into certain places and immediately it makes you wonder about the people who have been there before you and the stories and the things that have taken place in the rooms. One of the things that's nice about this poem that makes me think of the story is that idea that we're, it reminds me that whatever's happening in Heather's story is just one window on a street. So, you know, that idea that even within a house, there are different parts of it that have got different stories to tell. And that's true of a neighborhood, that every window is showing us something different. And if you imagine the richness behind this one window that we get to see, imagine the whole street, everybody's got these stories in the same way that right down to even within the houses, there are stories upon stories, you know, that there's a loose banister and there's a story about that, I'm sure. And it's sort of endless the way, you know, if you look at the world that way, everything you peel back the skin of, there's a story there, which I which I love as a positive thing rather than a kind of complicated thing. Yeah, and, and that idea of just being generous and kind to people because you don't know what their story is. Who knows what's going on with everyone? So we make these assumptions and we make these judgments about people and we don't have a sense of what their own story is. And for me, this is a wee reminder just to think we never know everyone's story, so don't make assumptions. She hints at that by saying her parents' bedroom has a bed in the choppy sea. I think that was the line that really brought it home for me the bed and the choppy sea because there's a lot in this poem that you can immediately relate to it makes you smile or laugh or recognize but that line my brother's bedroom needs a different boy was the one that made me kind of stop and think what is she getting at there and what does she mean by that yeah and the walls aren't thick enough for all the screaming is it that the boy needs a different bedroom or that he yeah he really needs to be a different person and hasn't been able to be that person in that house is an interesting question it, it raises lots of questions and i guess in some ways that boy needing to be a different boy it links in many ways with Heather's story about how you how you become yourself when you're surrounded by people who expect you to be a particular way you know and I think that's true of most adolescents at some point kind of think oh, I need to find a way to be my really be myself hemmed in by this family which of course isn't always true but I think because it's our experience for however many years till we hit that point we feel like that's a family that is sort of boxing us in to be whoever we've always been which makes change difficult and I think that's just part of the process of being an adolescent and growing up and getting to decide for yourself whether the character that you are expected to be within your family context is the one that you really feel like is you and then everybody's got a different family scenario whether that's accepted or not and that lovely idea of Robin Redbreast tap dancing on the red dance floor and it's a lovely link back to the first line Ran, yeah exactly yeah, that everybody's doing they're dancing in their own way. Oh, well, that's been a lovely story and poem this week. Thank you again to Heather and to Jackie for those beautiful words and for, for us getting to, to listen to them and read them on open book. 
Shall we swap over to some feedback from this week's work? Yeah, it's been a busy week again. One of these weeks I'm going to say, oh, it's been really quiet this week. (laughs) (laughs) We might be more relaxed. I certainly won't need caffeine for that week. Um, But at the moment, yeah, we're really busy. We've got so many of our groups back up online and we're delighted. We'll tell you a little bit about some of the feedback there. But one of the things that's really nice this week is we've been working on the future campaign with the Scottish Book Trust in partnership with them over the last month, encouraging all of our groups to read around the future, theme of future, and think about the theme of future and then write to the theme of future. And what we've been able to do in the last couple of days is package up all that writing, including some group writing from our groups at places like the Grass Market Community Project and Bethany Christian Trust and Mary Hill Integration Network, as well as groups further afield like Ullapool and Orkney. We've been able to put all that work together in a package and send it off to the Scottish Book Trust for consideration for the book that they'll produce for Book Week Scotland in November this year. Last year, we had some of our work from our Syrian Mums group from Edinburgh make it into that book. So we're keeping all of our fingers and toes crossed that something from one of our groups will make it into the book this year again. I loved hearing that the Wednesday creative writing group this week were so inspired by what each other was writing and reading and sharing in that creative writing group that they started responding within the group to each other's writing and writing to each other's pieces. So I'm hoping we'll get to see some of that writing at some point. I think it's being worked on and polished at the moment. It'd be lovely to see how that turned out. It's really nice when that happens in a writing group, but also it's a funny moment because you almost need permission from the person whose idea it was to, to do it. <laughs> because otherwise you can be so there's a little tension of you know kind of is that okay can I use that idea of the peony opening up or whatever because I love that I I have something else I want to say and normally in fact always so far in my experience someone says yeah of course that you go run with it so and as a writer it's lovely to hear someone else pick up your work and work from there you feel like you've given a gift in, in some way so that's lovely I loved hearing about responses to the Gunter's story and particularly a couple coming back and saying, wasn't sure whether he was dying or not. But one particular person came back and said it made him go back to the story and actually read it for himself, which was a first. Normally he just listens. So I wonder what it is about that story. I think there were enough questions in it that you kind of wanted to go and read it for yourself. I wonder if that'll be true of this week's story too, that there's so many questions in it. You'll all have to go and read it for yourselves if you can. So it is in this week's newsletter. So you can go, you can either subscribe to that and get it directly in your inbox. Um, You subscribe by going to our website, which is openbookreading.com. And there's a form there. And you can either get access to the newsletter directly from the website or if you prefer to get it into your inbox on a Monday, um, fill out the form and that will get set up for that to happen. The other thing that I loved hearing about this week was the story from our Grass Market Community Project group who had a full house this week. That's the first time they've managed to get a full house of readers online. But one of them um, had been in the middle of baking a cake when it became time to join the group. So she abandoned the cake baking mid-cake bake, which we were honoured for her to do. But I think they then spent the first sort of 10 minutes of their group not discussing the story or the poem, but swapping favourite recipes. So I was wondering if that should become a feature of the newsletter. should be recipe of the week. Yeah, well, as cake lovers, we're all for that, aren't we? Yeah, please talk about cake and eat it if you can beforehand. So 
we just want to make a shout out to our our pool group who had their last session of the season as it were um they do a really interesting thing they're not able to meet on zoom because the bandwidth isn't always enough to support it so they do a kind of email group where they're all online at the same time and effectively trying to do a real time email and they do even write group poems that way which is just remarkable so thank you to Lorraine our lead reader who manages and and looks after that group but they looked at Edwin Morgan poems and were really responding beautifully to those and someone said this brings out the best in all of us which is really nice nice to hear particularly in his centenary year I think my last shout out of the week is to our writer in lockdown, Jan Carson, who's been doing such an amazing job with her postcard stories. And one of the recipients of those postcards is waiting with bated breath because she knows that Jan has posted out a story to her this week. She just found that out this week, so uh, was super excited. She's self-isolating and shielding at the moment, so she said she was really looking forward to having some contact with the real world again when Jan's postcard drops through. Oh, that's lovely. And my last shout out is from a, what used to be mine and is no longer my Glasgow Women's Library group, which was full last week when they got back together, finally got back online with our lead reader, Alice Tarbuck. And they wrote loads of things together and as a group. And apparently the, the work included herons, hares and stoats. So I'd love to see some of that work if anybody wants to send it on to me. Herons, hares and stoats. It feels like a, a kind of beer or something. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a pub. Yeah, exactly. I think that's just about us for this week. Um, I cannot believe we're at podcast number 10. When we started on this project, we thought, well, we'll, we'll do a few for a couple of weeks until lockdown ends. And here we are at number 10. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Keeping going. Yeah, still really enjoying our uh, weekly chats when we can't sit opposite each other in uh, in the office at the moment. So it, it's, it's been amazing. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. And we hope to be with you again soon. <laughs>